Good morning. You're listening to Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. The time is 10 o'clock. I'm Amy Brown. CJ Walk, the host of Common Ground Radio, which is normally heard in this time slot, couldn't be with us today, but will return next month. Today we have a special report on the proposal to remove the Orland Dam, a decision that regardless of which way it goes will likely have impacts not only on that town but on surrounding areas as well. Orland took over ownership of the dam from Verso in 2011. The dam has been found to have serious structural issues and has failed in the past and currently salt water flows over the top periodically. It also blocks fish passage and the existing fish ladders are considered inadequate. The town will be voting on June 14th on a ballot question that gives two options, either keep the dam and have the town foot any associated costs, or move forward with the removal process by working with NOAA Fisheries and the Nature Conservancy to acquire available funding for removal of the dam and ancillary costs. NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, one of the major forces behind the Penobscot River Restoration Project. In 2014, they designated the Penobscot River watershed as a habitat focus area, one of just two on the East Coast, citing the environmental, cultural, and recreational significance of New England's second largest river, which provides habitat to many migratory fish species, including three that are listed as endangered. Those who oppose removing the dam are concerned about the impact on waterfront views, which could start changing with the tides, potential impact of salt water on wells and bridges, and the need to find a new source of water for firefighting, as the impoundment that's created by the dam has been used for that purpose. They're also uh, uh, concerned about whether or not the grants that the town might receive would cover those costs. The need to coordinate dam removal with the cleanup of mercury in the river so as to not further mobilize a mercury hotspot just below the dam is also a concern for many people. At a well-attended forum Wednesday night in Orland, experts who have been studying the issues and agencies offering funding for the project provided updates and heard comments and questions from the public. The entire presentation lasted more than two hours. This morning we'll hear from some of the panelists and some of the members of the public who commented. If you'd like to hear the entire meeting, we'll post that along with links for more information on our archives at weru.org including a link to the engineering study that has been conducted over the past several years and other places you can find more information about that. Paul Anderson of the University of Maine Sea Grant was the facilitator of the meeting Wednesday night. John Barlow, chair of the Orland Dam Committee, spoke first. Welcome. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is John Barlow, and I've had the honor of chairing the Orland Dam Committee. It's nice when they say Dam Committee. I tell my wife I gotta go to that Dam Committee meeting. But anyway, I've had the honor of chairing that committee uh, for the past few years. After Verso turned over the uh, Orland Village Dam, we raised funds and began to look at various alternatives that the town might do with the dam. Uh, the five alternatives that we looked at were to keep the dam and maintain it, to replace the dam with a nature-like rock ramp system that would allow fish passage, repair the dam and fishway, uh, and perhaps build a new efficient fishway, to remove the dam, or the last one to do nothing. 
Uh, we've boiled it down to only two reasonable alternatives based on the scientific studies, the engineering studies, and the costs. Uh, and they are to keep the dam and be prepared to cover maintenance and required upgrades for fish passage or remove it. The objective of tonight's forum is to present to you the information we've collected and the advantages and disadvantages and unknowns uh, for these two options that will be voted on in the town election on the 14th. As a committee, we have not made any specific recommendations. However, I'd say that each of the committee members has probably come to their own conclusion and how they individually would vote. At the end of tonight's session, uh, you'll get a chance to vote, voice your opinions, and we as a committee members can also uh, voice our own personal uh, opinions. But first, we hope to present the data that has been developed and open it up for questions on the data. I know that the possible removal of a structure that has been present and shaped the appearance of the village for at least probably the last 75 years is an emotional issue for many of you, including myself. And change is tough, but also a complicated one, and one that you should not take lightly as it involves hundreds of thousands of dollars and impacts on fish and wildlife and recreation throughout the watershed. Your heads, as well as your hearts, should be engaged in this decision. Um, next up, Dr. Karen Wilson is from the University of Southern Maine, where she's a professor in um, biology and other things. She's been studying diadromous species of fish. Those are the fish that come and go in our rivers. Um, throughout their life cycle for different reasons. And uh, in particular tonight, she'll talk about the alewife and some of her other work. Well, this is a real pleasure to be here. I grew up in Old Town and spent much, much of my life coming past Orland on my way down to Stonington. Um, so I spent a lot of time exploring this area and it's, it's really a pleasure to be here. So what I want to do today is talk to you a little bit about alewives in particular, just to give you some history of this fish. Um, and to talk a little bit about its biology. Um, and I'm actually also going to talk a little bit about salt marshes. I've done some work in Newcastle, Maine on Sherman Marsh, which was also an impounded lake, uh, and the dam blew from natural causes uh, in 2005. And I did a 10-year study on the vegetation changes in that salt marsh. So I thought I would tell you a little bit about that study as well, just to give you an idea of, of what it means to go from an impoundment to a flowing sort of salt marsh system, what that might look like. So I wanted to impress upon you that Orlin is not an isolated system here. And those of you who may have picked up the handout in the back that was about the history of the Orlin River that um, Catherine Schmidt has put together, you'll see that it talks about not just alewives, but salmon and shad and smelts and all sorts of different fishes moving through the system. And if you were here back in 1600 and you were looking at what fish were moving through the Penobscot, um, which would include the Orland River or the Naramissic River, you would have seen an incredible amount of activity of these diadromous fish. So these are fishes that spend some time both in freshwater and marine systems. So you would have seen smelts coming in very early you would have seen uh, lamprey moving way up into the headwaters, and then their, their uh, offspring spending seven years in the headwaters before moving back out to sea. Um, you would have seen alewives coming in 
uh, up to the lakes and ponds. You would have seen salmon coming out and adults coming in to spawn in the fall. Um, you'd see, who did I just put up there? I don't know. Um, here's a blueback herring, which is related to an alewife. There's probably a few mixed in with the alewife run. Um, you, we had shad moving up these rivers. Um, and from some of the historic quotes, they were moving up the Orland and the Naramissic as well. Um, I haven't included striped bass, which were also here. And there's three more species that did this type of work. Atlantic sturgeon, short-nosed sturgeon, and tomcod, all three of species are present in the Penobscot and probably would move up into the Orland River if given a chance. So this was a pretty busy place. And the way you can really tell um, is this map, which you can't see very well. But this map shows the Penobscot River here. It's the Penobscot estuary turned on its side. So that's south and that's north. Um, and so here's the Penobscot River. Here is Verona Island. Here's Orland and Alamusic and Toddy. And it's hard to see, but there's all these hatch marks all the way through here, all around Verona Island, all around the shores here, up into Orland. Those are all weirs and traps. Um, this map was from 1873. So at that time, there was enough of these diadromous fishes moving in and out of this estuary system to keep that many fishermen busy pulling fish out of the river. So just to give you a feel, I mean, this was a place of abundance. And so what you see today is a bit of a drop in the bucket of what was once there. So um, this area has been known for its fisheries for a long time. And alewife was certainly one of those fishes, but there were lots of other things happening. And I should say that uh, it was the shad and the salmon that were the most valued of those fish. So this is the life history of an alewife in particular. Um, they spend their adult years at sea. In the springtime, they come in and they spawn. And I've written, they're natal spawners, so they always return. And this is the, the wonderful thing about this fish, is that if you take care of your, care of your spawning run, three to four years later, the juveniles come back to spawn. In addition, if you have good downstream passage, the adults go back out to sea to return again the following year. So you get a lot of payback for your stewardship of a run, which is a little unusual for, for fishes. Um, the juveniles hatch in the lakes. They spend from two to three months uh, in the lakes. And then they move out. We're finding they're moving out into the estuary. We didn't realize this. We thought that they just went out to sea. But in fact, the Penobscot estuary is absolutely chock full of juvenile alewives. While these fish are in freshwater, they're prey for things like bass. And when they're out there in the sea, just about anything that can swallow them will. This happens to be a mackerel that I caught that had just consumed several um, alewives. Um, on that same fishing trip, we pulled cod up from 80 feet that had been feeding on alewives, um, just had a stomach full of alewives. I did want to mention just a few things about salt marshes. Um, I had the, the luck, I guess, to work on Sherman Marsh in Newcastle, um, kind of stumbled upon it. Um, and, and I'd always had an interest in salt marshes, but I got to know a lot more about them. I should say I'm trained as a limnologist, which is someone who, who studies freshwater. Um, so that's really my, you know, my true love. But uh, salt marshes, it turns out, are pretty interesting as well. Um, this is a typical salt marsh in Maine, in mid-coast Maine. This is the tidal area. The tide comes right up to here, and you can see that the plants change. This is a plant called a smooth, cord smooth cordgrass, which can handle being submerged in salty water 
which is very rare. Not many plants can do that. Maybe five I can think of in this area of the world. And right along this edge grows a plant called the marsh goldenrod. And then up here, this is what we call the high marsh. This is what Michael was talking about. This is the area that's only flooded on the high, high tides. And it's a plant called marsh hay or spiritina patens. This was a very important plant for the early settlers in this region because it could be hayed and, fe and fed to livestock. So before the forests were cleared, before people had their farms established, this is where they got their hay. Um, so if you look at old maps from the 1800s and the 1700s, all of the salt marshes are s sliced up into little plots for all the citizens of the local towns. My name's Jeremy Bell. I work for the Nature Conservancy out of Brunswick. Um, I manage our sea run fish restoration program there. Um, and we are a global organization. We have offices in all 50 states in the country, and we also have more than 35 offices around the world. So we do global conservation work. In Maine, um, we were instrumental in the removal of the dams on the Penobscot River. And um, another interesting thing is that we're not just about nature, we're also about people too. Uh, we work really closely with the fishermen out of Port Clyde and out of Portland to help them maintain their jobs and their way of lives by buying fishing permits. And we lease those permits back at a reduced rate so that they can continue to fish and try to rebuild the groundfish populations. Um, and I would point out that alewives are food for the groundfish as well. So this strategy that we do to try to link sea run fish ties in with our groundfish restoration strategy and our community resiliency strategy where we try to keep people fishing. Okay, so um, why is the Nature Conservancy interested in this project? The, the map that I have here is a, uh, it's a study that was done a few years ago by a couple of my colleagues here in Maine. Um, and they did a project called the Northeast Connectivity Assessment. And the light blue section from Maine to Virginia, they did an assessment of 13,000 dams in this area, this region of the country, and assessed them for their quality and their importance for fish passage and fish restoration. 13,000 dams, okay, from Maine to Virginia. And then this next slide in the red box here, this is the Orland Village Dam. This is number 23. It ranked number 23 on the list of 13,000 dams. And the reason why is because, you know, your, your alewife fishery is one of the most impressive in New England. Um, it's a really big run. The potential is even greater than it is now, and that's why it ranks so high. And that's why I um, helped to manage the engineering contract uh, for this study on, on the Orland River. One thing that, um, that I've heard is that we have to hurry up and do this quickly, and uh, no, no dam project, if you voted to take out the dam, uh, no dam removal project ever goes quickly. There's still more study to do. There's more to, more to learn. There's more investigation to do. Of course, it's your dam. You, you have the decision. It's in your hands, and you can decide what to do. I would encourage you to think towards the future 
um, we would like to improve the firefighting water supply, think about a way to uh, replace that dry hydrant that's in the impoundment now um, and make that actually better than it is. The next thing is to improve the LY run, improve the harvest by um, developing a new alewife collection facility that would be designed as part of the dam removal process. Um, take away those costs from the future maintenance of the dam or, God forbid, a, a catastrophic failure of the dam that, like what happened 20 years ago that would be a big expense on the town. And finally, because there are so many groups that are interested in this run, including NOAA, the Nature Conservancy, and others, we would like to contribute substantial financial resources if the dam were to come out. So those are just some of the things that over the next couple of years, if the town decided to move in that direction, which would not be a final decision, that we would be continue to investigate those things to, like I said, make this a good project, not just for the fish, but also as a community planning and a community improvement exercise. So that's all I wanted to say, and I look forward to speaking with you in the future. Thank you. This is a WERU special on the Orland Dam removal proposal. The speakers you're listening to were panelists at a forum on the topic held in Orland Wednesday night. Uh, we have next presentation from the uh, NOAA office up in Orono, Matt Bernier. And what I think Matt's going to touch on now is, so depending on what happens in your vote, what are the steps and processes that might play out over time? Thanks, Paul. Um, uh, for folks who don't know, NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It's a federal agency, uh, part of the U.S. Department of Commerce. And all of you who get weather forecasts every day use NOAA weather satellites. Um, you know, that's probably the most familiar part of, of NOAA. I work for something called the National Marine Fisheries Service, or also known as NOAA Fisheries, and you'll see a lot of references to that. Our involvement in the, in the project really was by invitation. Back in 2013, uh, Town of Orland had already acquired the dam from Verso Paper um, and started asking some questions um, about what they really had, the condition of the dam, fish passage, things like that. So uh, the town really had a lot of foresight in this regard, put together an excellent dam committee who worked very hard they applied to NOAA for funding for the initial feasibility study, raised some additional funding to match that, and uh, we funded that. We selected that uh, for study, and we were on our way. Um, did a lot of the work that Mike uh, touched upon, you know, finally inspecting the dam, doing a lot of the mapping and everything. And then I think really importantly, we started to dig into some of the cost. And these were really preliminary, but as with a lot of dams that we work on, the numbers add up really quickly, no matter what you want to do, whether you want to maintain or repair the dam, put in new fishways, remove the dam. You know, we're talking about things that are hundreds of thousands of dollars or uh, well over a million dollars. So as part of the feasibility study, too, uh, it wasn't just, you know, Mike and Stantec doing the work, the, the scientific work out there, but it was an opportunity for us uh, to actually listen to the community and uh, learn more about what your interests were in the dam. 
Obviously, there's been a dam uh, in this location uh, for a very long time. If you look at a former dam that was in the location, and we think the remnants of this are uh, still upstream of the Timber Crib Dam, uh, there was reference to a granite dam uh, as far back as 1869. It was probably older than that. This is a photo from about 1910. You can see the granite dam there. Um, you know, the, the dam was such an iconic part of the town and the village that the river was separated and was named something differently above the dam, the Naramissic River in the freshwater, and the Orland River below the dam in the saltwater. We also got to see, you know, firsthand, I've been out on the impoundment a lot, kayaked around, paddling and, and so on, uh, the recreation that people enjoy out there, so we under, understand that completely. Um, and, you know, we learned uh, a lot of the reasons why uh, the town accepted um, the transfer of the dam from Verso Paper. So after the initial feasibility study was done, we answered a lot of questions. We still had a lot that was remaining. The town came to us and said, now what? You know, we'd like to keep going with this. Uh, we still have some questions. There's more information we want to do. What are we going to do? Well, fortunately at the time, NOAA was creating this new initiative called the Habitat Blueprint. And as part of that was this concept of habitat focus areas, where these would be priority areas. These would be sort of national priorities where NOAA would work on behalf of fisheries and, and habitat. Um, within the greater Atlantic region, which is basically the northeast from Virginia all the way to Maine, so very large swath. We only selected two. One was the Chop Tank River complex down in Maryland and Delaware, where most of the work is focused on shellfish, like oyster restoration, and then the Penobscot River. And in the end, the Penobscot River was a pretty easy choice for us. One, it's very large system, historically, uh, had very abundant fisheries. You know, we got to talk about, when we talked about alewives and shad, use um, throw around numbers in the millions, 100,000 Atlantic salmon, just, just very large potential. And I think that's really important for people to realize, you know, Karen talked about the fish that are in the estuary. You know, the fish that were here historically are still in the Penobscot, and that's very rare throughout the entire East Coast. And it makes the Penobscot really, really special. You know, those fish may be at reduced numbers from what they were historically, but the fish that were here and have been here for thousands of years are still here, which is really, really remarkable. So, you know, we always want to have people keep that in mind. And if you look at all the NOAA regions, so it's not only the United States, but you know Alaska and the Pacific Islands are only 10 habitat focus areas. So the Penobscot being one of those 10, I mean it has a, a national priority for our agency. Um, so through the Habitat Blueprint, working with the Nature Conservancy and Maine Sea Grant, Mike talked about this, started the next phase of the feasibility studies, got to go into a lot of more detail on some of this work. Uh, the town of Orland on their own went forward with um, funding and implementing the geotechnical borings that were really part of that, and we really got to start to delve into some of these issues. And, you know, for, um, you know, we, we'd be asked occasionally, 
Well, didn't the initial 2013 feasibility study, those big costs, those issues, why didn't that scare you away, Noah? Well, you know, it, it comes down to the fish and the habitat for us. If you look down here in the corner, these are the fish that are below the dam, the different species of fish that would like to pass upstream if given the opportunity. And so if you go back at low tide, of course, nothing's getting upstream, even with the existing fishways. Even at a higher tide, there's only a few of those species that are getting upstream. We're still leaving a lot behind. If you look at one species in particular, you know, that Karen talked about, the alewife, um, you know, there are a lot of red flags that are being raised, a lot of concerns that are out there. So this is some information from the Maine Department of Marine Resources, but they're saying that, you know, based on the spawning acres upstream, so this is the lake and pond habitat, the run of alewives in the Orland River should be well over a million fish. They would like to have it up around that number. Um, you know, keep the run going, keep the harvest going. But there have been documented fish problems. You know, the fish can't get upstream at certain tides, there are fish being left behind. There's no dedicated downstream passage, so these are the juvenile fish that are trying to get back um, to the Penobscot Estuary or the Gulf of Maine. Uh, they get stranded on the spillway and, and they die. They, they never make it and we see these fish kills uh, regularly out there. So, um, sort of looking at the sustainability of the situation out there as well. Um, you know, the cost always keeps coming up. Um, and the issue of who pays. Well, when Verso owned the dam, they used to pay for these things. And, you know, I'm not sure how much of this information Verso shared with the town before they, they gave it away, but they were able to come up with it afterwards, certainly. And the costs were appreciable, and I think Mike touched upon this, but, you know, 83000 in 1985 for some repairs and rebuild of the dam. That lasted all of nine years until a coastal storm in the winter of 1994 when nearly 100,000 more had to be spent on the dam. So that's sort of the level of repair that as a dam owner we think that Orland would be in just for that sort of, um, you know, storm-induced uh, repair cost. And we wouldn't even consider that necessarily the sort of catastrophic um, uh, damage that the, the, the dam of the site has the potential for. Um, we also saw emerging issues as well, salt water getting upstream already. Um, also what happens if salt water got upstream in the future. The DOT bridges, and Mike is here, is going to talk a little bit about that. But also fish passage issues, and in particular for one species, Atlantic salmon, which is federally endangered. So if you think about sea level rise, um, this is uh, tide gauge information from the state of Maine for Portland, Maine. The Bar Harbor gauge is certainly closer, um, but this one has a longer record, goes, goes back a little farther in history. Um, but you know, it, it's real, it's been happening. So basically since the dam was built in the about 1930, the ocean has risen about six inches. 
So everything is higher, high tide, low tide, the storm surges and everything. Um, and these trends are going to continue. And in fact, some of the trend lines that people are plotting right now are starting to bend upwards. And, um, you know, they're talking about sea level rise um, in, in terms of feet, you know, not inches anymore. And, um, you know, we tend to think of the dam being overtop by tide levels as part of a storm system. Obviously, this is a sunny day, just happened, uh, you know, one of those monthly high tides. Uh, that happened, the Orland River is high and the, and the water is flowing upstream. But to put uh, things like storm surges in perspective, I couldn't find any information on the 1994 event, but it went back and looked at a storm surge that happened in 1976. Um, the predicted tide that day was nearly six feet in Bucksport. It was about six feet higher because of offshore winds. Um, and, and the, the tide cycle that it was in. So it wasn't associated with ice, it wasn't associated with rainfall, it wasn't associated with snowmelt. This was, you know, the moon and offshore winds conspiring <laughs> and creating this, this uh, storm surge. And in Bangor it was even higher. The, the storm surge was nearly 11 feet above the predicted levels uh, in downtown Bangor. And Atlantic salmon, too. You know, sometimes um, I talk to audiences about Atlantic salmon, and, you know, people might as well think that I'm talking about unicorns. But um, they are here. They are in very low numbers. They are very endangered. Uh, this is a photo of a salmon that just last year was below the Frankfort Dam, uh, came up uh, in, in July, was in one of these pools on a hot day, and ended up dying. Um, it's currently a uh, NOAA Office of Law Enforcement uh, investigation, which is ongoing. Um, so, you know, these issues are, are, are serious. You know, as an agency, we're expected to work with dam owners um, before they get into trouble with endangered species like this, because this situation, um, you know, is, is not very good. And if you just think about this particular fish, we happen to know that it was a, it was a, you know, like a large female. It was a multi-sea winter fish. So what that means is it spent more than one year um, out in the ocean, made more than one trip up to Greenland, the Arctic, came back, avoiding everything out there that wanted to eat it, whether it was sharks or bluefin tuna or seals or whatever. You know, obviously a very smart fish. Came back to Frankfurt and died in a puddle at the base of the dam. So, you know, this is what we're, uh, you know, one of the things um, we're really trying hard um, to avoid. So in terms of the next steps, um, you know, these projects take a long time. NOAA's been involved in big, complex projects. It's kind of what we do. Um, we've certainly developed, I think, a really good reputation for it. We've done a good job. Locally, uh, the Great Works Dam removal and the VZ Dam removal, we had big roles in that. Those were projects that took, you know, from their conception, over a decade to get everything done, the studies, the funding, and everything. Um, you know, where we're at with this is if the town votes to go forward, working with the Nature Conservancy and NOAA, you know, we're still back in that feasibility stage. There's initial feasibility or additional feasibility that we need to do 
even before we go into the preliminary design final design we're always updating the cost where you know finally there's a permitting stage which is you know really really onerous it's can take a lot of time and then overall there's environmental monitoring so somebody asked me you know what was the earliest that the dam could come out because there was an expectation that if the town voted say on june 14th to go forward with the removal that that would happen right away well even under a best case scenario uh, we don't have dam removals happen more than two years mainly because of the design and the permitting stage and the monitoring um, it just takes a long time um, to get that done um, I think with a really complex project like this, it's going to be more in the realm of Great Works and VZ, so we're looking at several years of uh, additional study and design. That's where we're at, so if you're not interested in the dam coming out for several years, that's the path that we're on right now. I'd like people to realize that. And if you get a chance to go down to VZ, the dam removal site that we did, and, and see the park that was developed there, it's really hard to tell where the dam ever was. It's just a, a totally beautiful site. So, you know, for me, the, the way that I've been thinking about this, I've been interacting with this dam in a long, long time, and uh, a lot of what I've been doing over the years is, is going out to the Orland Village Dam and looking down. And so I go out there, you know, over and over again, and I look down, and I see dead fish, and I see rotten wood, and I take yet another photo of my shoes, and it goes into a file, and, and that's it. Um, finally got the opportunity, you know, working with the town of Orland, I could start to look forward a, a bit. And so one of the issues for us is an issue of continuity. You know, given that the process takes a very long time, We've been working with the town for a number of years. We'd like to keep that relationship. The additional studies, the questions that you have, maybe new questions that you have, you know, we want to keep going with that. And, um, you know, it, it's no real urgency um, on our part uh, to get this out, but I think there is interest in keeping the, the, the funding stream going just because it's less disruptive um, on, the, on the studies, keeping this moving forward. So if you look up at the top there, the Nature Conservancy, since 2014 through the Habitat Blueprint, we've been giving them over a million dollars. It's not only for Orland, it's for other projects as well. But the point there is, you know, we have annual um, appropriations that we do. We have annual conversations with the Nature Conservancy about what they need for projects, including the town of Orland. Um, and, and so, you know, it's, it's an interruption if, if we have to put Orland on the, on the back burner uh, for a few or, or several years. And then there are other opportunities that come up as well. And if you read the Bangor Daily News or listen to Maine Public Radio, you probably heard about the, uh, the Penobscot River, the oil uh, settlement, leak settlement um, that has been filed with the court where there's um, you know, nearly 900,000 that's available there. Uh, NOAA is one of the trustees for that resources, uh, along with the state of Maine and, and US Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, Orland has the potential to get um, some, maybe a, a lot of that funding, but again, you know, it's, it's a matter of 
the trustees, when they're sitting around a table, you know, we have to have um, a, a real project. Obviously, the conversation doesn't go very far if Orland has just voted not to work with us anymore and, and keep and maintain the dam. And that's it. Thanks, Matt. Mike White from DOT is going to make a few remarks. He doesn't have a presentation for you, but you've heard a bit about bridge scour and some of the other infrastructure that could be uh, affected. I believe he's got a few remarks on that. Mike. Thank you. Uh, my name is Mike White. I'm with the Maine DOT Bridge Program. And the big reason I'm here is dams impact DOT's infrastructure. As noted earlier, uh, stream, there's four bridges that are owned and maintained by DOT that could be impacted by this project. Uh, we also have some major roads, the Castine Road and Route 1. Uh, as part of the Phase 2 study uh, that's ongoing now and be wrapped up soon, the analysis shows that uh, the Castine Road Bridge is going to have the most dramatic changes in water velocities. Uh, practically speaking, the water speeds are almost going to double. We built the Castine Road Bridge 2009-2010 timeframe, and it's protected with what we call plain riprap. Riprap's about the size of your head. And uh, that was designed for the conditions that are out there now. With the, uh, if the dam is removed and the velocities do increase by almost double, uh, the current riprap will not protect the bridge. Uh, we'll have to basically put in additional countermeasures to protect the bridge. Um, we're basically more than likely riprap, basically our stones is about this big around. Uh, and as part of the permitting process, we basically require whoever the permit E is, in this case it would be the town of Orland, would have to work with us and would have to fund changing the riprap from small riprap to large riprap to protect the bridge. As mentioned earlier, uh, Dam removal cost is around $500,000, but there's a lot of other infrastructure costs that wasn't included, like dry hydrants and the bridges. Well, doing this bridge, uh, fixing the bridge up at Castine Road could add several hundred thousand dollars more cost to the bridge, bridge removal option. And that's uh, another fact I want to throw out there is if the town decides not to take the dam out and keep it for many, many years, uh, if ever down the road the town, you know, a flood event happens or the town eventually decides at that point they want to take the dam out decades from now, the same issue is going to come up for DOT. We want to protect our infrastructure and make sure folks can drive Route 1, folks can drive the Castine Road. Uh, we would still require the town of Orland at that point, hey, we need to protect this bridge. You guys need to, need to pay for that protection. So those are the key issues that DOT has with the, this particular project. Uh, a smaller issue the department has is uh, if the dam is removed, uh, we have several bridges upstream that are made of steel. Uh, steel lasts a lot longer in fresh water uh, than salt water. Uh, and so we have definitely concerns about uh, the durability of our bridges that are upstream with the additional salt water. The bridge at Route 1 is a steel bridge that's close to the water, and the Upper Falls Bridge, which is actually four steel culverts, uh, is not going to basically last as long with salt water.
You're listening to a WERU special on the proposed removal of the Orland Dam, which would restore the river to its natural tidal state. Up next are some of the public comments at the forum on the issue that was held in Orland Wednesday night. As I mentioned at the beginning, one of the concerns is about the mercury hotspot below the dam. That will be uh, addressed in this segment. Years ago, when Verso uh, gave us the opportunity to, uh, to take over the dam, the people of Orland said yes. This is and a member of the public of who didn't identify herself. Yes. Also agreed to take care of whatever needed to be done. And to prove that we said yes right away and took the responsibility, our town started putting away money right away. I'm sure that we're going to vote to keep that money coming. So um, I'm a little surprised we're even voting on this uh, on the 14th because Orlin has given its word and Orlin keeps its word. I was a little insulted uh, about the big funds uh, and the dangling of money in front of us. Um, I'm sorry, but I'm not a person that will put what I enjoy on that river um, ahead of uh, or behind the money that I'm being offered for this. And I think there's many of you who feel the same. Every day in the news, we... Um, we hear fear for this and fear for that. And I guess tonight I was surprised that we were hearing fear about what's going to happen to our village. And again, I don't feel very comfortable about, about that. Now, I live in the village, and I get to see the water every day. And I love the water. But I also know economically that my property taxes or property values are going to just go kaput. <laughs> and how are we going to make that up? And, and why should I let that happen for someone who doesn't live next to me, doesn't live in the village, doesn't really care? We had a fire last year, and we were very lucky that we had that water in the Naramisic River to pump and take our fire uh, out. That fire was taken out very quickly because we had that water supply. So I want all of you to think about that. And the last point that I want to make is we all know that there's a big hot spot of mercury down below the dam. What happens when that mercury comes up to the Narabesic River? What does that do? Well, what's it going to do to the turtles and the fish and the fowl and, and the water? You know, it's like I'm sorry that we didn't hear about the mercury because there's a big deal for a lot of people who are getting the mercury uh, from um, the factory. And they're, they're sure making a big deal out of it because they know how uh, important it is not to allow the mercury to move and to get the mercury out of there.
So if nothing else should postpone this or stop this foolishness, we need to clear that uh, hot spot of mercury before we do anything. No one wants the mercury in the Naramissic River. Thank you. I'll ask Diane Kopech to just share a little bit of information. I don't know the issue myself about the mercury work. I have, uh, sure. Hi. Um, my name is Diane Kopech. I was staff biologist on the Penobscot River Mercury Study. And I was uh, asked to do a project looking at the mercury concentrations in the Naramissic River, which I did last fall and produced a report that many of you got copies of when you were here. There, oh, and, yes, uh, today on the blog spot, um, uh, Catherine Schmidt did a summary of that report, and there are links to uh, the report that I did on the Naramissic and to the broader study of the mercury contamination in the Penobscot. The um, first, just to correct something, it's not just a hot spot of mercury in the Orland River. The entire lower Penobscot is highly contaminated with mercury. And that's the reason why Judge Woodcock ruled last year that the responsible party uh, from the Holtrichem plant, Mallinckrodt, had, is required by law to clean up the lower Penobscot. An engineering firm has been hired, and they are looking at ways to remove the mercury from the system, looking at the best way of doing that. Uh, the mercury in the um, Orland River downstream of the dam averages around 1,000 parts per billion in the sediment. Uh, background concentration for coastal rivers is less than 40 parts per billion. So this is it's a highly contaminated area, both in the Orland, in the East Channel, in the Lower Penobscot. What I did was look at the mercury concentration in the Naramissic itself and found that mercury is already passing over the top of the dam and accumulating in the sediment upstream of the dam. We found concentrations um, around 300 uh, parts per billion in the uh, area, in the sediment, just upstream of the dam. The concentration is around 150 when you go between the Castine Bridge and the Route 1 Bridge, and then it continues decline, to decline as you move upstream. So mercury is already moving into those surface sediments. There may be more mercury already present in the deeper sediments of the Naramissic. I only looked at the top three centimeters. I didn't go down to depth. And you folks know that the dam has failed a couple times in the past due to storm events. Um, though some of those events occurred when mercury levels were even higher at the surface than they are now in the Penobscot. So it's possible that there's more mercury at depth in your sediment. More studies needed to define how much mercury is actually there. But the gradient of mercury, so that the higher concentrations are 
right next to the dam, and then it declines as you move upstream toward Upper Falls Road, shows that mercury is still coming over the dam currently. The mercury in the Orland River is mobilized. It's picked up by tidal action and sloshes back and forth. And, you know, we've, um, it's important to recognize that any uh, dam removal would be best coordinated with the cleanup of the Orland River and the Lower Penobscot. You don't want to further increase the mercury moving into the Naramissic. But as I understand it, that is part of this study to look at how um, the dam removal can be coordinated with the cleanup of the Lower Penobscot. I, I do have a question, uh, but first, uh, I'm Dexter Johnson. Currently, I'm chairing the uh, Orland Comprehensive Planning Committee. Um, I'm not sure where I stand on this. I know I love the river down there. It's one of the most beautiful places in the state. It's been photographed thousands of times. You've seen it on calendars, Downey's calendars, forever. So it's a scenic resource. It's something that's uh, valuable to our town in that sense. But, you know, there are the downsides of possible, ex you know, ex extreme cost to the town. So what I want to say with regard to the comprehensive plan, and we have a, a waterfront study committee that's working parallel. It's actually part of the comprehensive planning activity, but they're working really uh, on a parallel course to, to study the river, what we have for resources. And um, I'm hoping that out of this comprehensive plan, which is uh, uh, 16 years overdue, uh, we may come up with strategies that may make it uh, actually uh, feasible to keep the dam or even replace the dam. I don't know how I feel about that, but I like seeing the river there. And uh, uh, so, I'm just a little concerned that if we vote to do something like remove the dam and then we find out that there may be some really good reasons to keep it or replace it, that we may be um, you know, caught before the horse. So that's my speech. My question is, I've heard a lot about uh, taking the dam out uh, or what... Here's my question. If the dam goes out by itself, by natural means, What's the impact to the town? What are the actual costs going to be to the town? And why would there be any if nature takes the dam out? You were mad. From DOT's perspective, if the dam eventually fails due to neglect or some storm takes it out, uh, we'll basically the department will be asking the town of Orland to help us with the Cassine River Bridge to uh, make sure that's protected. So there's a co cost of several hundred thousand dollars there to the town of Orland. Thanks, Chairman. Go ahead, ma'am. Okay. Good evening. Uh, my name is Margaret Day Rivera, and I live on the Naramissic, or I have a piece of property there. And um, I'm also on the dam committee. Um, I have one piece of information, which actually I haven't shared very much, because I've just recently acquired that about property taxes, because I know I and other people on the river have this concern. And um, I found out that there is a economist at Bates College 
Her name is Dr. Lynn Lewis. She has been studying the effects of dam removal on property values all around the state. And I recently contacted her and asked her opinion, what her research has been finding. Um, I had heard that she had done the study on the Kennebec and that apparently it did not have any adverse effects on property values. But then it was stated to me, well, that's not the same situation as we have here. That's an industrial setting. So it's not really equivalent. So I asked her about that and she said, oh no. She said she has studied all different dams, small ones and large ones up and down the state. And she said unequivocally that in every case, it has not had an adverse effect on property values. I thought that was stunning. I just wanted to share that. But the other question I have for the panel here is hypothetically, what if we do take the dam out or we vote to do that? And as they say, it would take maybe three or four years, who knows that long, maybe not so much, to accomplish that. But what if in the meantime, there is a big storm that takes the dam out for us? Are we stuck with the cost? Or if we have already voted to take the dam out, would this, these uh, funding resources be available to mitigate that? Or would we be stuck? Thank you. Okay, thanks, Margaret. That's an excellent question uh, about the cost. Um, you know, I, I think if the town votes to keep working with us uh, on the dam removal, and that's the direction that we're going, um, you know, our expectation and our hope is that we would have a planned removal. We would get out through all the process, all the studies and the permitting and engineering and so on. Um, Mother Nature may have something uh, different in mind for us. Uh, I think there would probably still be some structure there remaining. It would be a bit of a mess. Um, and it would change the nature of what we have to do for engineering there, you know, for the, to complete the removal. Um, and, um, you know, also the, the permitting that we have to do as, as well, so. Domina. I've been on the dam committee for about five years now and um, I want to say first of all thank you to all these people up here and to all the folks who've served on the dam committee um, they're passionate people they are caring people I've worked with them I'm really impressed with how much effort and time that they've put into this already um, and I'd like to just say something Orland has always been proud of having the third largest alewife run in the state Money from the alewife harvest built this building that we're sitting in right now. In the 1990s, though, we had to shut the fishery down due to lack of fish. And when the dam was breached in the 1994 surge and the fish could not get up the fish ladder, people went down to the dam and had a bucket brigade to get them over the dam. That's how much we care about it. I sat on a rock on Alamusic Lake yesterday and I watched hundreds of alewives swim by on their way to Toddy Pond. And I thought about how lucky we are that they're coming back. And that's in spite of our substandard fish ladder in the village. Yeah, it works okay, but it doesn't work at every tide, and it doesn't pass very many types of fish. 
I thought about how excited our interns are at the fish hatchery about the bass fishing here in Orland. Every year we have a few people, volunteers and interns that come and stay and work at the fish hatchery where I live. And uh, they get so excited about the bass fishing at Alamosa Cantati and they credit that to the alewife run. We care about our fish and wildlife in this town and we can do better than what we're doing now. But this is not just a fish issue and it's certainly not a fish versus people issue or a fish agency versus Orland issue. We all want clean water. We all want plenty of fish and fish eating critters. What this is is about change. Most of us don't like change. If I lived in the village and I loved my freshwater backyard, I'd be upset too. I'd have to mourn that if that was gonna change. But the fact is change is happening already. We need to acknowledge it and prepare for it. The dam has maybe eight years left in its estimated lifespan. Maybe we'll get lucky and it'll go longer. But sea level is rising. It's already overtopping the dam and it's vulnerable to another storm surge. The salt water is here now. It's not coming in the future. It's here now. There are barnacles on the bottom of the river in the village. Mercury is also here now, as you heard Diane Kopeck say. Uh, her study find the, found that the mercury level in the lower river is pretty similar or the same as the mercury level immediately below the dam. The Naramistic River is already more contaminated than our lakes. So those loons with their chicks in the village, those turtles, those frogs, those bass, they're already more contaminated than the ones living in our lakes. And if we wanted them to be healthy, we'd encourage them to leave. I hope that the mercury is able to be cleaned up, that we do some mitigation work before the dam is removed or before the dam is breached naturally. Because yes, some more mercury could flow up into the village, but having an open river will mean more flushing and having migratory fish in the river will mean fish are there for weeks or months or days and not years. <coughs> Local eagles and osprey are better off feeding their chicks alewives than contaminated freshwater fish. And you're better off eating smelts from the ocean than largemouth bass from the river. Because that's the way humans get contaminated is simply from eating things uh, that have accumulated mercury in their bodies. We're in a good place right now, in a very lucky place, thanks to the hard work of many people in this room. We're in line for a gift of hundreds of thousands of dollars to help us over the next few years cope with change. It could help us pay for things like new wells. It could help us pay for things like big riprap. We can take the money and the expert help and take control of this change ourselves, or we can let the change hit us like a ton of bricks down the road and flounder around wishing we'd had more foresight and less fear. So I hope you will all go vote your conscience on June 14th. Thanks. Those were some of the panelists and members of the public who spoke at a forum in Orland earlier this week on the proposal to remove the Orland Village Dam. For full disclosure, Paul Anderson and Sherry Domina are also WERU volunteers. On June 14th, Orland voters will determine whether the town moves forward with exploring removal of the dam or stops that process and accepts the ongoing costs of maintenance and repair. The forum lasted more than two hours, so we were only able to bring you part of that today, but we will archive the full meeting along with links for more information at WERU.org. You can look for that in a few hours at our website. And the blog spot that you heard mentioned was orlandfutures.blogspot.com. 
This is a WERU special. I'm Amy Brown. John Greenman provided production assistance for today's program. CJ Walk will be back with Mofka's Common Ground Radio in this time slot next month. Stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond coming up next here on Community Radio WERU FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Penobscot Theatre Company, a nonprofit organization.